You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. The U.S. relationship with China has grown very complicated in recent years. There are concerns ranging from trade and commerce to technology innovation and national security. During the Trump presidency, relations shifted toward a much tougher stance, and President Biden has maintained some aspects of that approach while also finding some areas of possible cooperation. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined by two distinguished experts. Tom Wheeler is a visiting fellow in the Brookings Governance Studies Program and the author of From Gutenberg to Google. Admiral Dave Simpson is retired from the U.S. Navy and works on defense and security issues. Tom and Dave, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. Thanks, Daryl. It's great to be here and great to be teamed up with Dave again. Daryl and Tom, the feeling is mutual. Well, let me start with Tom. So there's been much discussion about the technology competition between the U.S. and China. What is your sense of how the two countries are faring and where each nation has a competitive advantage? Well, that's a great opening question and a huge question. Uh, I mean, I think the reality, Daryl, is that we're in the middle of a race to the future that pits an autocratic marketplace against a capitalistic marketplace and and that the advantage that an autocracy has is also its disadvantage an autocracy such as china can move more quickly to prioritize activities make policy decisions but that the other side of this is that the top down kind of management stifles the kind of bottom-up innovation that leads to marketplace success and, 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 and new products and services for tomorrow. You know, I, I, was, I was with some folks from China not, not too long ago, and we were talking about this, and they said in Chinese, and obviously I didn't understand it, they said something in Chinese, and they translated it for me. And the translation was basically, the more you try, the more you fail, which is apparently a common expression in the digital community in, in China. And what it really means is that success is determined by what the government wants you to do. And on a top-down kind of basis, rather than out searching for something that is new and innovative on its own. I, I could not help but think when we were having this conversation uh, how it contrasted with Edison's quote, which was something to the effect of, uh, you know, I haven't failed 10,000 times. I've succeeded 10,000 times in identifying what won't work. And that's the difference between an autocratic marketplace and a capitalistic marketplace. Our challenge, I think, as capitalists 
in the United States is to make sure that we do not succumb to domestic technological autocrats. Capitalism is all about competition, and competition drives innovation. And our challenge is that big tech has thwarted competition and by controlling the assets necessary, such as the digital assets, and that we need to make sure that this is not one set of autocrats squaring off against another set of autocrats, but this is true, competitive, good old-fashioned American capitalism, because that's what's going to be necessary to win this race. Those are all great points. So, Admiral, your views on where each nation is doing well and not so well in technology. Let me focus first on where I think both nations have things in common. And I agree for the most part with Tom, but I actually believe that China is the capitalist nation. They're employing capitalism, though, very strategically, very shrewdly underneath an autocrat government with a communist ideology. So we should be concerned about their ability to be agile in that part of their economy that they've allowed to develop into more and more mature capitalist kind of forces in incentive structure. Both nations put a, a very high premium on education. Both nations have created strong incentives for I innovation. Both nations for decades, uh, in our case, uh, a century or more, have built uh, very sophisticated supply chains and have taken great concern to ensure that they've got access to natural resources. We have benefited from our democratic approach to government, which regularly ensures that we have the pulse of uh, uh, society, the pulse of the people, and understand that supply demand in a very good way with regard to our population, and have been committed then to work with similarly-minded uh, democratic nations committed to capitalist principles. China has very much worked to gain access to those same markets, attempted to increasingly bring more and more sophisticated products and services into those markets. So China is actually uh, very advanced technically in a number of areas. And some of those we've talked about before in our nation, 5G, China saw the potential there and moved out ahead of us in the collection of uh, uh, large data elements via the internet of things, the internet of useful things, I think China's ahead. And in that deployment of inexpensive sensors throughout the environment uh, has collected very large and diverse data sets very conveniently coupled with the work that they've been doing uh, on machine learning, deep learning, and ultimately artificial intelligence. So uh, I think that's my primary concern is that uh, where the race to 5G wasn't so important, the destination for 5G is, is I think, more important than, than the race. The race to AI is really important because the minute that the algorithms connected with the the right data sets are able to morph and develop and uh, address challenges. The nation or the economy that's there first will, I, I think, have a very significant technical advantage in the global economy that we won't want to see to China. And I think you are right on that because China certainly is putting a lot of money into uh, AI and certainly making pretty substantial progress there. 
I think the, the point that Admiral Simpson made about capitalist China is valid and evolving. You know, it was years ago in the early days of the internet, I actually signed an agreement with the Chinese government having to do with some technology stuff. And the, and the government made a big deal of, of telling me that the signing ceremony was going to be conducted in the same building where Deng Xiaoping had embraced the idea of a modified market economy with his comment that, you know, black cat or white cat, if it can catch mice, it's a good cat which was taken as the signal that that whether it be a communist planned economy or a capitalist market economy, that was a matter of resource allocation, not a matter of, of governing philosophy. And that coincided with the takeoff of the internet and the kinds of incredible developments that we have seen in China. But what's interesting is that Deng also said something else that has come back I think, to be the governing concept of the Qi government today. Deng said, if you open the window, as in to an open market, if you open the window, both fresh air and flies will come in. And I think what we have seen recently is the Qi government stepping up and saying, we don't like some of the flies we've seen and some of the results of this capitalistic behavior. And we're going to put some constraints on that and bring it more back in line to following Communist Party dictates. Hey, Tom, what if that what we don't like about what's going on is that part that got too big, right? that part that causes capitalism to begin to break down, which is the rise to oligopoly, development of monopolies. And is it possible that Xi's actions are that we would see as to, hey, we don't want you to get too big because it's not good for your communist britches, that there's more of that's not good for us in the long term. We want to oxygenate more of China's potential by ensuring that large corporate entities, large state-owned enterprises don't get too big. Yeah, I think there's two parts to it, Dave. I th- and I, I think you've just identified, you know, one is, so So why did, did she step up? It was to protect the control of the, of the party, that there were too many charismatic and powerful executives, that there was too much wealth in equity. I, I, I think it's something like 1% of the population controls 30% of the national wealth and the impact that that was having on what the Chinese government prizes above all, and that's stability. And so the fascinating thing is that what they came back with, as you just suggested, was many of the kinds of things that Western progressives are suggesting we ought to be doing here you know, anti-monopoly, pro-competition kind of enforcement, recognizing that it is competition that drives innovation, recognizing that, as you just said, Dave, it's the the data, which is the raw material necessary for that kind of of innovation. And so if you kind of go back to where Daryl was earlier, what's this mean for the U.S.? It means that they've stolen our playbook of good old-fashioned American competition at precisely the time when American big tech has a chokehold 
on determining what competition and innovation looks like in this country. And we have to get ourselves to a point where we recognize that to compete with China, we need to have the benefits of competition at home, and we're not there. Now, that is an interesting uh, point. And Dave, in addition to this issue about competition and how each country is uh, thinking about that, there also is lots of concerns about cybersecurity. And of course, we've seen a number of high-profile hacks and cyber intrusions. What should the U.S. be doing to protect itself? So let me start with what we shouldn't be doing. And in the last five years, really in the last administration, there was a hyper-focus on physical supply chain, all oriented around Huawei, ZTE, and, and the Chinese telecommunication companies. And certainly there are some concerns about having a Chinese equipment with Chinese potential intelligence or security service access to the developers and the sustainment of that equipment. But I'll note for all that focus, that that same equipment is still in our commercial networks today. And I would argue it was the wrong focus to begin with, that the, the real threat, and we know that China and Russia are very adept at attacking our networks through other people's equipment. And in fact, would probably prefer to do so given their interest in ensuring that their products and services are attractive to a global market that they want to uh, have a more dominant role in. So what's the, the alternative to this top supply chain focus? Well, in the last year, the, the Biden administration to their credit, I think has done a very good job of increasing the profile of cybersecurity. I, identifying it as a, an existential issue for our way of life and working to address the eaches of across the, the risk spectrum from proactive defensive measures to respond and recover and to judicial and, and law enforcement trying to, to dry up some of the dark money that fuels this. But their approach really has been a top-down approach with the focus on a federalization of cybersecurity that I think is destined to always respond to lag indicators or where the last attack occurs. I very much think that we need to be shifting our cybersecurity focus to lead indicators around our innovation economy, which means that when there's the gestation of a new idea that then it works to develop and become a part of the market, that's the time that cybersecurity needs to be addressed and built in as an element of design for the new product or service. Only the market doesn't incent that today. Cybersecurity is a negative externality, right? It's a cost center that won't necessarily reward early investment in cybersecurity in greater consumer desirability with regard to the product or service. So I believe that we should have a market-focused approach to cybersecurity that really works from the bottom up, that identifies those negative externalities that cause cyber not to be a natural element design in our products and services and address that through, if need be, regulatory means, through other kinds of incentives so that are building the world's best products and services that have, from the very beginning, worked to address what we really care about in cyber, which is not cyber itself, but is the protection of privacy, of our ethical considerations when we get to how we're going to use AI, uh, and ultimately 
our way of life and the sustainment of individual agency within the United States. So I, I, I think kind of flipping the script, be just as active as we are now, but let's work to address the market conditions within our economy uh, to ensure that the cyber is there from the beginning. So Tom, what is your view on how we can handle these cybersecurity issues? Well, my first rule in dealing with cyber is never argue with Admiral Simpson. <laughs> that sounds like a great rule. You know, I had I had the great privilege of of working with Dave at the Federal Communications Commission, and and he led an effort to install this kind of a process, uh, a thought process, in a very rigid regulatory environment. And it was something that was subsequently ripped out by the Trump FCC. But, but he's absolutely right. We need to think about this in new ways. We have a new set of challenges. We need to look at it in ways other than from the top down. So, Tom, there also has been a joint Chinese-Russian effort to transfer Internet oversight to the International Telecommunications Union. Can you explain what is happening and why this is important? Yeah, you know, this is a, this is a fascinating development that has been flying under the, under the radar, where in June, Presidents Putin and Xi got on a teleconference to reinforce an agreement that the two countries were signing, which, among other things, created an alliance to try and restructure the freedom and openness of the internet to serve their purposes more. It was David Ignatius, you know, the great columnist in the Washington Post, when, when he was discussing this, he said something like, to, to the effect that in the annals of diplomatic hypocrisy, this was a stunner exceeding even Russian and Chinese standards for hypocrisy. Because what they have done is that they are going after the operational governance structure of the internet, which is done by a volunteer international group of engineers, and move it into a United Nations political body called the International Telecommunication Union, where instead of having independent engineers make decisions and oversee the functioning of, of the operation of the internet, it can be overseen by political structures. And, and the politi politicization of the entire process is for the purpose of giving those two countries more say in how the international aspects of the internet run, while at the same time, and this is where Ignatius cries out hypocrisy, well, at the same time, this uh, accord that the two countries signed said that they must retain the right to have absolute control over how the internet operates in their borders. So it's basically one of uh, I want to tell you how to run the internet, but I'm going to run the internet however I want to run the internet. And that is an ongoing international political challenge that this nation is going to have to deal with. And then just one other point while we're at it here, that China is also attempting 
to use this same UN body, the International Telecommunication Union, uh, to propose a new technology to underpin um, the internet. Instead of using the so-called internet protocol, which is kind of the lingua franca that that allows disparate networks to be able to work together. They want to, to have a new IP, a new internet protocol. And the fascinating thing is that when you look at what they're proposing, it is less of a new underlying technology and more of a structure that will allow governments to have more control over internet through top-down control. And, and so we need to be aware of these tensions that are going on every day insofar as just how will this incredible platform, you know, the most powerful and pervasive platform in the history of the planet, the internet, just how will it be governed going forward? And we can't assume that what was always will be. So, Admiral, I'd love to get your views on this and any advice you have for the Biden administration on how to think about this very complicated issue of Internet oversight. Well, I was a senior delegate in 2012 to the ITU's World Conference on International Telecommunications, representing the United States with a a great team led by Ambassador Terry Kramer, who's a a friend of Tom's as well. And I, I... think we were very solid in our position up to the end of the Obama administration with regard to the value of a multi-stakeholder approach to governance of the internet and the U.S. role in leading, but really leading from behind, encouraging and being a cheerleader for that multi-stakeholder and really international co-development between universities and economies and government interest areas within the internet. What happens since then, unfortunately, the Trump administration took a very nativist approach and withdrew from the international uh, uh, community working on many of these internet issues. They stopped the FCC participation in 3GPP or the standards body that it was really leading uh, development of 5G and is partly why we're caught flat-footed there in under the Trump administration, the leadership of the ITU shifted to China, and we did not make cybersecurity diplomacy a priority until the last couple of years of the the Trump administration when they woke up and said, oh, wait a minute, we created a vacuum and other nations are more than happy to fill it in. Couple that then with actions taken within our market economy that uh, uh, had Again, that hyper-focus on, oh, we need to get foreign nations out of information infrastructure. And that led to some decisions in the U.S. to really begin to pick and choose technologies at the federal level that would apply just to the domestic market. If all we had to do was put a moat up around the United States and and, and protect from the walls on in and then never interact with the global economy with our international partner nations and try to influence their thoughts around this thing called the global internet, then that might be perfectly fine. But a a domestic cyber risk approach ignores the fact that we really want to influence and be influential around 
the entire globe and that's be a part of the internet develop for partner nations that we we want to be able to be a bulwark against China. I will note that since 2001, we have had more democracies than autocracies up until this year, where we now uh, again see this resurgence of autocracies, this attack really, or this erosion of the value of democratic governance that is very concerning. So I, I think the approach to the internet needs to also look at what are the equities that our partner nations around the world want to have, should have, and how do we work together to establish norms and to really ensure that we don't start putting up Westphalian borders around each country and have a patchwork quilt kind of internet going forward. So David has mentioned a number of global risks. So Tom, based on that, some leaders are calling for the decoupling of supply chains and building more of a domestic capability within the United States just to guard against some of these international problems that are popping up. How realistic is that in the tech area? Is it something we should be pursuing? Well, I think there's a couple of answers to that, Daryl. One is that, you know, we made an economic decision. American companies made an economic decision some time ago that the big value, high margin opportunity was in the intellectual property. And we were happy to design chips and get the high rewards out of that while having them build someplace else at low cost, generating low margin for that that construction capability. And and that has now come back to have an impact on us. And it's only gonna increase as the world becomes even more dependent on microchips. So two quick thoughts. Number one is that we probably need to think in terms of a Western supply chain alliance to make sure that the liberal democracies of the world are cooperating, much like they cooperated to, in NATO to face a challenge of the 1950s and 60s. Now we have new challenges that require unify, unified alliances. And the second point that I would make is it seems to me as though China has already decided that it's going to have its own decoupling. The Qi government has their Made in China 2025 program where they have a national plan that of all the things that are going to be made in China. I, I have a friend who was visiting with some senior Huawei executives and they pulled out one of their mobile phones and oh, popped the top and inside painted a specific color was every chip that they were outsourcing and needed to be producing domestically. And the, and the message was, we know what they are. We know what has to be done. We're going to ourselves decouple and produce those. So Dave, do you see decoupling as a realistic or useful option? Yeah. So first to your earlier question for, for Tom, the chip shortage, it's affecting defense planning and military preparedness, right? President Biden's recent announcement about uh, need and willingness to step up to the plate to defend Taiwan very much in part has part of this calculus TMSC and the dependency that we have on 
chips that are manufactured in Taiwan and to a lesser extent to South Korea. And until we develop domestic sources or at least Western sources of chip manufacturing, I should say reconstitute re those, we'll have a dependency much like our dependency on oil, which drove us to military engagement in the era when we were dependent on the free flow of oil from the Persian Gulf. So we don't want to be, have that drive our national security strategy and and the where we engage around the world. We we need to develop that diversity of the supply chains. I do think that played a role in this decoupling. And I first visited China when I visited Hong Kong before it was returned to China and was still with the United Kingdom, and then have been back to China several times since then and back to Hong Kong. Up until about four years ago, we were increasing our market share, U.S. companies were, in China in very significant ways. And when I first visited, uh, there was no real respect for intellectual property. And, and China was very quick to take software and then just copy it and copy it and no real respect for software licenses in the 70s and 80s. But over time, developed internal controls and saw the need to protect intellectual property to where in the 2000s, 2010s, there was there's very good control over licensing and within the Chinese economy, protection of, of brands in, in China. And consequent, Apple was there, the most popular phone whenever I would visit China. In fact, the, the CFO of, of China, when she was taken into custody, had three phones. Two of them were Apple and one was Huawei. The, our software companies were increasing their share. So when we made the decision to begin to focus on the threat to China within our supply chain, I think instead of really looking at the areas that we weren't competing in, that we should be competing in, we focused on excluding China from the areas that we weren't competing in. And that has led to this snowball of now China taking steps to exclude us from their market that drive towards decoupling. And if you take that to the the ultimate end, where we truly have two completely decoupled tech economies, I'm wondering if we're going to like the half that we have. If we're going to have the, the half for which the market is relatively mature, there isn't a, a, a whole lot of dramatic upside into increased use of, of technology. And China's going to have that part that we were so aggressively making progress in that is growing with tens uh, to twenties of percentage points every year. And if we look at wanting to be able to influence that part of the world, decoupling means in the information economy that we have less influence to, in fact, have the citizens of China and the region better understand the U.S. So I'm not so sure. I don't think decoupling carried out to the very end uh, is the right answer for us. And I think we should be looking for strategies that hold China absolutely accountable for the areas where uh, they aren't engaging in the free market in an appropriate way to begin to hold them to the same standards that other Western capitalist nations are held to, but find a path that ensures that we can protect the critical infrastructure within our own country and other democracies while having a, a, a part of our collective economies in a balanced way, continue to exchange in information, goods, and services. So, you know, I mean, maybe what we need to do is, is also rename this. 
talking less about decoupling and more about recoupling, where we build alliances that we understand the need for protection, but at the same point in time, we understand the importance of promotion and the role of intercooperating economies. Well, all this has been very informative, lots of great insights from each of you. So I want to thank both Tom and Dave for sharing their thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about digital technology, and you can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.